Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we'll discuss the latest news out of Ukraine with Professor Lori Blank, who studies international conflict at the Emory University Law School, and her work in the past has focused on Ukraine. Also, it's been a busy week at the state capitol as lawmakers got into the weeds on a number of hotly contested bills. So we'll recap all the action with our WABE politics reporters, Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass. And also, advocates want to stop Georgia colleges from asking applicants about prior felony convictions. I'll speak with Patrick Rodriguez and Abigail Cook from Beyond the Box as they talk about why they want to, well, basically go beyond the box and stop asking that question. But first this, nearly 4,000 soldiers based at Georgia's Fort Stewart are heading to Europe to support NATO allies now that Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now, they're known as the Raider Brigade, and the majority of the troops are from the 3rd Infantry Division's Armored Brigade Combat Team. They'll head to Germany first and then ferry out to other NATO countries if necessary. According to the U.S. military, their deployment is meant to, is meant to help defend NATO allies and deter any further aggression from Russia. In other news, redistricting maps for Cobb County School Board and Board of Commissioners are moving through the state legislature. The state Senate passed the measures Thursday. Local redistricting maps in some counties have ignited intense debate this session. Republicans in the legislature have opted to scrap some locally drawn maps in favor of alternatives they've drew themselves. Democrats like Senator Jen Jordan say Republicans are co-opting the redistricting process to preserve political power in diversifying communities. What it reflects is an effort by the majority party to actually try to take back power after they've lost elections previously. And Republicans say at the end of the day, it's up to the legislature to approve the final maps. They say their maps are fair and they are legal. And finally, Atlanta United kicks off its sixth Major League Soccer season this Sunday as the club plays host to Sporting Kansas City at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Atlanta United defender Miles Robinson says the team is ready for the season. Yeah, we're feeling good. I think we've been, you know, slowly building on each day and each week of training. I think the guys are starting to, you know, play with each other much more comfortably. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to get out there on Sunday. It should be a good one. It will be the first full season under head coach Gonzalo Pinata. The club posted the league's best record after he took over in August of last year. Sunday's match begins at 3 p.m. And from all of us at Closer Look, go Atlanta United. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender.
And Closer Look continues here on WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up later in the program, we'll recap what's been a contentious week at the state capitol as lawmakers went back and forth over some very controversial bills. And we'll preview next week. But first, as reported, the situation in Ukraine is changing by the moment. Russia began an unprovoked invasion of the country yesterday, as we know. At the time of this live broadcast, the New York Times is reporting that Russian troops have reached the outskirts of the capital, Kiev, where buildings have been shelled. Now, again, those are reports from the New York Times. And we know that Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky says more than 130 civilians and military personnel have been killed. Again, that's at the time of this broadcast. The United States, the 27-nation European Union, and other Western allies have announced a round of punitive measures against Russia, banks, and leading companies. Countries in Asia and the Pacific have also joined in. So here's that question. Is this enough? Well, joining me now to discuss the latest and add, and to add a lot more context is Lori Blank. She's a clinical professor of law and the director of the International Humanitarian Law Clinic at Emory University School of Law. And it's where she teaches the law of armed conflict and works directly with students as well. Professor Blank, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Let's begin here because there's this reoccurring narrative that's been said over and over that this is arguably the most dangerous moment for Europe in a generation uh, through your lens. How much truth is in that statement? Well, it's certainly a very dangerous moment. Um, you know, trying to make comparisons to previous times are are always hard, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think we can downplay how dangerous this moment is. Um, It's dangerous for people on the ground in Ukraine. We want to remember that first. The human suffering um, Mm -hmm. is, of course, uh, of paramount concern. It's dangerous for the security of Ukraine and its neighbors. It's dangerous for the European security. And, of course, it's dangerous for our world order, um, Mm -hmm. which this has upended. And to that, uh, many talk about that, you know, there have been some serious missteps for many years leading up to this, given that it's been clear about Vladimir Putin's thirst or rather obsession with Ukraine. Uh, You agree with that, that leading up to this, there have been serious missteps, whether it's with with NATO or or whether it's the United States. How do you see this? Well, you can always look back in hindsight and when we have, you know, information at the time, it's it, it always gives us greater uh, insight into what we might have been able to foresee in the past. But um, I think what's important right now is there is great unity and solidarity um, with the U.S. and its allies in NATO, uh, in Europe uh, and more broadly around the world to condemn this, to support Ukraine, um, and to stand against uh, any action, any aggression Mm -hmm. like what Russia is engaging in. So when you look back, can you can you find moments? Oh, maybe this could have been done better or different steps or we could have foreseen this type of activity. It's quite difficult to, you know, uh, say that anyone change in policy Mm -hmm. might have made a difference, uh, particularly given, as you said, uh, Putin's obsession with Ukraine. Um, So it's hard to know what might have changed things. And Professor, for our listeners who may not be aware of, you know, and obviously we could go back many, 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 many decades, and some will even say centuries if you want to really dig into all of this. But for our listeners, can you give them a brief primer on why Putin, and again, his claims that Ukraine is not a sovereign state here? Well, as I understand it, um, obviously there are there are deep historical ties mm-hmm. uh, between Russia and Ukraine. I think that obviously Russia was part of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, which you know uh, was no more as of 1991, mm-hmm. and Ukraine uh, has been an independent, sovereign state uh, since that date. But um, it has you know, historically been, uh, you know, a, a core, um, Putin certainly sees uh, sort of a, a central tie between mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine. I think that is driven on his historical perception of of the 
Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union and the Soviet sphere and cultural ties and his own personal worldview. So I think there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, however, you know, historical ties, personal views, emotion, obsession, those don't change the fact that Ukraine is a sovereign state. It has its own territory, its own borders, its own government, and those are all protected under the international system. And mm -hmm. another state can't just say, True. well, I don't believe in all of that. So here I come. I actually have a question from a listener who says, Rose, I understand what your, your professor is saying in terms of right now, it's not the time to reflect on the past, but uh, he, and I guess I mean Putin, has calculated these latest moves, and I'm not sure there's an answer. He's got major Western European entities on their knees. Um, in other words, I guess they're saying that, look, folks, have, this is nothing new. They should have been able, when I say they, now maybe that's the key thing, folks should have been able to anticipate that Putin would pull something like this, and that should have been a, a better uh, approach, and folks should have been ready to deal with him, folks being, I guess, NATO or the, the other European allies here. That's easy to say, obviously, and that's what you pointed to. Um, but right now there's human suffering and human loss. So trying to go back to, to point to who did what and who didn't do what is kind of mute at the point. Um, yes, although I also I think it's important to emphasize that the U.S. and its allies have not been asleep at the switch here. The U.S., uh, administration has been uh, very effective over the last several weeks at making sure that the world knows what it has been able to glean about Putin's intentions and Putin's actions. And that's been critically important to building and solidifying this uh, international solidarity mm -hmm. uh, against Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And so by sharing intelligence and by making sure it's publicly known what Putin has in mind, uh, that's been very effective at enabling uh, the U.S. and NATO allies to stand together. And so I think that's been very effective. I think the fact that uh, the U.S. and NATO are not sending troops to Ukraine does not mean that we're not doing anything. It can be difficult to see uh, the levers of power and geopolitics at work, to mm -hmm. see reactions based on international law at work because we're we don't see them the way we see military movements. But um, there have been very extensive sanctions imposed on Russia. And there are more as from what we can see reported mm -hmm. in the news, there are more being readied uh, in, in essentially a ratchet approach, which is don't throw everything at the first and don't throw all the sanctions mm -hmm. into the mix uh, the first day, but keep ratcheting things up um, in reaction, always allowing yourself another tool in your toolbox, but also giving Putin, you know, an opportunity um, to perhaps rethink this very disastrous adventure. So, well, Professor, given the sanctions that have already been implemented, and this is, again, is the first non-military response, while it may be crippling to Russia, but also it does impact other European nations. So is this, a, you said don't put every, don't show, in a sense, show all your, all your cards at once. But there has to be a strategy here because you look at Germany, for example, they have a, they have a, a, a reliance on, on Russia for, for a natural resource here. So you can't just, these sanctions, again, while crippling Russia, they could impact other nations. So you can't just levy them all at the same time, correct? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's certainly um, an important piece of it. We have to remember that what Russia has done over the last several days is a flagrant violation of international law and mm -hmm. a flagrant violation of our international order. And I think President Biden put it very well the other day when he said that defending freedom comes at a cost. And it's one thing to stand up and condemn. That's, of course, important. You have to condemn violations. But in taking concrete steps with sanctions and other measures, um, those will have some type of cost on 
those countries and the communities that are imposing those sanctions that may come in, as you said, restrictions, um, you know, restricting access to resources, therefore creating higher prices at the pump or in other areas. But I think it's a I think he phrased it really well when he said defending freedom has its costs and but it's also essential. Right? Well, Very few things that are that important don't come with some cost. Well, at what point, and this is through your lens, at what point, if you're talking about, okay, NATO here, that with this unified international response being key, but at what point then does it mean you move beyond the sanctions and it could mean a barrage of allies and their militaries? Obviously, folks, don't you don't want to get to that. That's just a full-out war. We're in war now, but they are. That's war. And a lot of folks don't want that. But is there a timeline? What metrics do you use to say, okay, we've done the, we've done this with the sanctions. Now it's time for more of a military, heavy military personnel response to this. I I imagine obviously those conversations are going on uh, constantly in in the capitals um, of of uh, all the NATO countries, but. One of the reasons that we have tools to uh, like sanctions and and other measures to try to um, address these types of situations is to avoid escalation into a wider conflict. Sure. That is really fundamentally at the core of our international system, which is the you know preservation of sovereignty and territorial integrity and the prohibition on using military force for conquest Mm -hmm. um, and for, you know, political purposes. And that's been that's been a pillar since 1945 with the founding of the United Nations. And part of that is not just to prevent exactly the type of thing we're seeing in Ukraine, but it's also to prevent the the escalation beyond that Mm -hmm. as sort of countries pile on to the situation like we saw with the start of World War One, for example, and so on. So. Uh, I'm I'm confident those discussions are going on. That doesn't mean that what the next steps either would be or would not be. But I think we want to keep in mind that, you know, any decision about adding military force into the mix of an already extraordinarily volatile situation, mm-hmm. you know, has uh, really significant consequences and, um, you know, for everybody involved. With, all, with your expertise in all of this and knowing what we know uh, so far, it, beyond what you just said in terms of we want the outcome to not include a, a escalation of war, but then it, it, it's at some point, then if we're still two or three weeks, you and you come back on the show, we're still having this conversation, then it is likely that could happen. Yes, I think one of the really big concerns that we need to be paying attention to right now is the human cost Mm -hmm. of this conflict. And we, you know, we, we're seeing reports obviously of heavy fighting of, um, obviously casualties, uh, lots of persons being displaced in Ukraine, people fleeing, looking for the border. We're seeing bombing in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing uh, reports of the Russians having lists of people that they are going to uh, either hunt down or detain. We saw reports of putting in camps. These um, these all serve as important reminders that really we have to be concerned about the protection of civilians and the civilian population mm-hmm. during wartime and focus not only on the broader geopolitics and strategic considerations of the situation, but make sure that the rules we have in place to protect people in wartime are enforced, are complied with, and that we take you know, every step possible, both during and after a conflict to um, prevent those violations and mm-hmm. hold perpetrators accountable. And, of course, the images coming out of Ukraine of folks sheltering in subways. And you just heard a report on NPR explaining all of this to kindergartners. Yep. 
Lori Blank is a clinical professor of law and the director of the International Humanitarian Law Clinic at Emory University School of Law, where she teaches the law of armed conflict and works directly with a lot of students. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking the time, adding a lot of context and insight to this. Our listeners really appreciate it. So do I. Thanks so much for having me. And Closer Look continues on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Legislative committee meetings aren't usually thought of as exciting. I'm just keeping it real. They can really be. I know I've covered a many. Well, this week inside the state capitol, lawmakers worked through the details of bills in very cramped committee rooms. I've been in there, too. But some of the debate was pretty intense. Democratic State Senator Elena Parent is will you hear will you will hear questioning her colleague Republican Clint Dixon about whether he consulted scientists as he crafted a bill that would let students opt out of local school mask mandates. Did you consult with Dr. Toomey or any the, of the doctors the at any have. of the school I, systems? I uh, yes, they did discuss with school system. Yes, health and science experts. I don't know. Sound like law and order. Well, WABE's political reporting dynamic duo of Raul. Are you laughing at me, Daniel? <laughs> Our producer, are you laughing at me for saying that? <laughs> WABE's political reporting dynamic duo of Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass. They were there for all of it, and they join me now. It's been a minute. Glad to have you all back. Rose, great to see you. Uh, great to be back. I describe hearings. Those committee, <laughs> committee hearings can be... Uh, that was my attempt of, you know, snoozing, dozing. But they're important. So I don't want folks to think that we're saying they're they're not important because they're boring. But sometimes it's just a lot of talking. But this week was a little different, huh? Yeah, I mean, there have been several topics this session that have actually been kind of some fireworks in the committee hearings. Um, there's been real tension over some of these schools issues that we're talking about, also redistricting. Um, I mean, that mask tape that you just played um, is one example. Um, what we're talking about there, it's a bill being carried by Governor Brian Kemp. Uh, it would sunset in 2023, but uh, there was still a lot of heated debate over this. And and not just that, it, there's also, you know, so many of these issues are, are deeply personal to people. And I, and I saw deep emotion on hearings involving mental health and, mm-hmm. and and medical cannabis. Um, mm-hmm. there, there was a, I, for those on Twitter with me, I posted a video of just a, uh, an advocate for medical cannabis. It's just frustrating. You could just hear it in his voice. Hmm. And, and Raul, let me stay with you for a moment. And Sam, you can also weigh in on this. For folks who may not understand the process here, we'll just like a little bit more further detail. At this measure right now, no pun intended, uh, if a, a bill is has made it to a committee hearing it okay but if a bill hasn't even had a committee hearing right now is it pretty much done with let's get that out the way no i still think it got it has time i think um you still have time to to get a hearing get things moving i i feel like if if a bill doesn't start moving by mid-march you're in trouble kind of that that week after we do qualifying Mm -hmm. you need to get your bill moving Mm-hmm. Um, uh, otherwise I, cause I, there are a number of bills, including gambling that I still expect to start moving at some point. You know, how and I something feel- that kind Go of, ahead, Sam. Oh yeah. I was just going to say something that kind of struck me is I think we're only on day 20 of the legislative session, which is halfway, even though it feels like we are way farther into this because just the way the calendar days versus legislative days. It feels like we're closer to the end, even though we've only had half of the actual legislative days. So that's something new for me as a first timer. And also, are we at a point where we might see some bills being shoved together? I know that's not the terminology that folks would use, but, you know, merged, I guess. Are we at that juncture in the state legislature where we might see some bills being combined for to maybe increase the odds of it even, you know, passing. Oh, we, I actually saw that happen this week. You guys may remember the bill that I mentioned about you and I being able to touch our cell phones at a red light mm-hmm. or a stop sign. That bill stalled in committee 
-hmm. the Public Safety Committee. So the bill's sponsor took it to another committee, which is the one, he, the committee he chairs, State Senator Frank Ginn, and he put that bill into another bill and passed it out of committee. So it has a chance to get to the Senate floor. So I expect to see more of the, the bill swapping, language swapping, and then combination start happening more and more. But I already saw it happen this week. Well, let's give our listeners an update on some of these measures that have obviously been in the headlines of education big. A lot of this related to, you know, mass mandates. Let's start with that. Where are we now with the bill as it relates to public health prevention measures in terms of what public institutions like schools can and cannot do? Where is that? So, uh, so I can jump in on that. That's going to be uh, the legislation by State Senator Jeff Mullis. Uh, that bill did get a hearing and did pass out of committee. What the bill does is it bans state and local governments and agencies from mandating COVID-19 vaccines that does include public schools and does include public universities. This would be through June of next year. Possibly you could see it get a vote on the Senate floor next week. What about a bill that would expand the rights of parents to review what their kids are being taught? Yeah, uh, this is legislation that's called a parent's bill of rights. That's what the Republican sponsors call it. Um, This is another one of those bills like the masks bill that's being um, kind of brought to the floor uh, on behalf of the governor. So um, big support behind this um, from the top levels of leadership in the state. And it's I've kind of struggled to actually understand what this bill does. It seems a little amorphous when you first glance at it, but it essentially guarantees the right of parents to access information like grades or attendance records. And it sets up a timeline for how quickly schools need to respond to those requests. And the other thing it does is it says parents have a right to review instructional materials during the first two weeks of every single nine week grading period. Um, The question that's been raised by a lot of this is how much of this is already available to parents, how much of it is already required by the State Board of Education, what new is actually being done by codifying it into law? Well, Sam, let me ask you this. So if if parents have the right to review material, does it also say then they have a right to say, well, I don't want my child to be taught this and then they can pull a kid out? I don't understand. What's the purpose of that? Is there anything beyond, Okay, you get to review it, then what? So this bill does specifically provide provisions for pulling a kid out of sex education, for example. Uh, But my understanding, it's a little murkier on what happens in terms of resolving this complaint that parents have made. Um, And it gets into some of these other questions that we've had about bills related to how race is taught in the classroom, about what how books are reviewed in libraries. So I think that is something that legislators are trying to pinpoint when they're having hearings about these bills. Democrats have been pushing back. What exactly happens? What are some of either a chilling effect or the potential for material to be removed? It's a little bit unclear right now. All right. Well, let's move to an issue that seems to have everyone support on. And this, of course, deals with access, improving access to mental health. Um, Where are we right now with this legislation? Uh, The legislation is still in the House Committee, the Health and Human Services Committee. This is the Mental Health Parity Act. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it did have a hearing this week and some changes were made. So one of the ideas is a registry that every time someone who's having a mental health episode has an interaction with either law enforcement or a hospital that's kept in a registry so people can know who they're dealing with. Uh, One of the things that's been changed, they have taken out children, underage kids out of that registry. It's just really complicated. They could do something down the road, but that's been taken out of the bill. There's a developing flashpoint, and both involve law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Number one, on that registry, should law enforcement have registry access to that registry, that mental health registry? That's one. The other issue is transportation, and here's what I mean by that. Once somebody who's having an active mental health episode, law enforcement is dealing with When that episode is over, when it is over, who's responsible for taking that person, whether you're taking them to the hospital or you're taking them to a crisis intervention center? When the the issue is de-escalated and and is calm, is is that a law enforcement officer who Mm -hmm. should be doing that? Or should that be an ambulance that takes that person? Mm -hmm. And then finally, lots of discussion about what to do about language, specifically you know, it's obvious you should have 
with the size of our Hispanic population in the state of Georgia and Latin population that you have uh, those languages. But what about smaller languages, the Asian languages and other languages? What do you do about that? Those are some of the things. Right now, the goal is still for lawmakers to try to get a full House vote next week and get it over to the Senate by the end of next week is the current goal. I want to return back to the schools and our students for a moment. Republican lawmakers are pushing a bill that would ban transgender some transgender students from playing on sports teams that match their gender identity. And if you listen to Democratic State Senator Kim Jackson, who opposed the measure, uh, she talked about not only being the first openly gay state senator in Georgia, but told lawmakers she faced discrimination when she participated in sports earlier in her life. Take a listen. The very accusations and mischaracterizations that were hurled at me some 20 years ago are now being used to harm a new generation of children. And I want you to know that they were wrong to be afraid of us and to deny us of our dignity then. And they are wrong to be afraid of you and to deny your dignity now. I am committed to creating a world where you do not have to go through what I went through. I am committed to creating a world where girls, all girls, get to feel safe and free to be exactly who they are. Raul and Sam, obviously this is one of those measures that is is right down party lines in terms of support and opposition. Uh, Where is this bill right now? So similar bills have come up before and they've died in the House in past years. The House is where this legislation is headed next. So we will see what happens when it gets there. Uh, As you mentioned, total party lines, I think every Republican in the Senate voted yes for this bill. It will be interesting to see if any of that breakdown changes as it moves into the next body of the State House. Um, You know, while this debate was going on last week, uh, Raul noticed that several House members were actually lined up on the side of the floor to watch this debate as it played out, anticipating that it will next happen uh, in the House. Um, The other thing, too, is that Governor Kemp has actually said that he supports passing a similar bill that deals with this issue this term. That is different from past years. And he uh, listed it among the other education pushes he's been talking about in his State of the State address. So that tells you something right there about the support that he is throwing behind it. So we will see. The -hmm. other thing, too, Litigation could be in the mix if this passes, um, probably challenges around Title IX. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been in other states. Uh, And just one thing I want to mention, this might affect a small number of kids in Georgia, but Democrats say the consequences for mental health uh, for trans kids could be really huge for a group that is already marginalized. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to leave you with one stat, uh, the Trevor Project said something like, more than half of young trans people contemplated suicide in 2020. Mm-hmm. So um, these are some of the big uh, facts that are kind of underlining uh, this debate as it plays out in Congress, the, the real world consequences of it. We also saw some movement this week on local redistricting maps. What's the latest with that? So, I mean, we talk about contentious issues in the state house. This has been one that seems really boring and wonky on its face, but has had some serious fireworks this session. Um, that's typically because these maps for school boards and county commissions are drawn locally, and then the legislature just signs off on them for the most part. Um, this session, Republican lawmakers who control both of the chambers, um, scrapped those local maps and redrew their own in a couple of counties like Cobb and Gwinnett. Uh, Republicans say they drew fair maps. Uh, Democrats say the maps are basically drawn to preserve the political power of Republicans in growing and diversifying counties. Uh, But what happened this week is that Democrats have fought these maps for weeks, but now they're starting to be passed by the legislature, signed by the governor, and deadlines for candidates to qualify for the district they're going to run in are coming up really soon. So Mm -hmm. Democrats have basically acknowledged they might just have to work within these maps that are less than ideal from them. And Raul, correct me if I'm wrong, because I believe you had some tape there with Speaker Ralston, who basically said to Democrats, y'all stop tripping because this is what y'all have done in the past, too. That's pretty much it. (laughs) 
Uh, he said that, and then also, uh, you know, what he has said in the, in the past. This is, you know, it's a political process, redistricting. So those are the things he said He said with me when I asked him about it. And then some things have you said in the past, of course. Of course, he didn't say, y'all stop tripping, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> it would have been cool had he said that. I'm just saying. Doesn't seem in character. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Sam? You can't see Speaker Ross is saying, y'all stop tripping. I would love it if you did. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, my next conversation with the speaker is going to be interesting. Excuse me. Raul, you have an eye for sleeper issues. Uh, Where are we with the raw milk and what are lawmakers trying to do about pets in restaurants? Let me tell you something. The raw milk bill is moving. Um, It had another hearing this week. It cleared committee. Mm -hmm. Um, And so here here are a couple of things that have changed. First of all, I can tell you guys right now, with the the way the new bill looks, you are not going to see raw milk at the grocery store. It's just not going to be there. What what it's looking like now is direct-to-consumer sales, for example, at a dairy, at a farm or a farm store. That's, that's where it's going to be. Uh, also, it looks like it's only going to be raw milk. So, like, you're not going to get raw milk cottage cheese, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only going to be raw milk, not the products. Now, they're still going to be concerned. I was actually talking to a state lawmaker uh, today. They're still concerned because it doesn't seem like you're cutting off the current source of raw milk, the people mm-hmm. who are getting it from the, you know, the stores that are only for animal consumption. Sure. What is the warning label going to look like when it comes to that? So there's still going to be things to be worked out. This is one of those where it's not a partisan issue and, and, and it's, but there's strong opinions about it. Well, and I'm wondering, Rowan, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but also doesn't, aren't there some just federal guidelines regarding this that also have to be adhered to a state just can't come in and and just usurp that correct i do not know so maybe that's Mm -hmm. a question i should be asking and what about pets and restaurants i mean we love pets i i I love i miss mine dearly what's going on with pets and restaurants so right now there's actually a restaurant there are a couple of restaurants in town that that want to do this and that is not only can your pets sit in the restaurant but can they serve food to your pets, like I have a menu um, to serve those pets. And like I can order my dog Elvis a hamburger at the restaurant. uh, You know what? I should pull up the menu They actually have the menu online. I don't have it. It's called lazy dog. Um, Your dog is named Elvis, Sam. He came with with it. Uh, It's because he's a hound dog. It took me a while to get it. Yeah. My my dog is named Akash and he's looking at me right now. Um, So right now, there are not rules on how to do that. There's not public health rules on how to serve food to animals in a regular restaurant. Inside and too. State not representative, just so, so state representative Beth Moore is putting together legislation that would basically tell DPH, hey, put together rules so then we can serve like food meals to dogs at restaurants. I'd like to know what our listeners think of that. Hit me up, rose at wabe.org on Twitter. As we begin to wrap up real quickly, Raul, what are you going to be watching for next week? Um, state budget. Um, expecting that to move. Probably the most important thing to folks that's in that budget would be the $1.6 billion tax refund. So depending on who you are, anywhere between $250 to $500 uh, would be a tax credit that you're getting. Also following a number of legal bills, Um uh, you know, that deal with, for example, you know, lawsuits, um, notary, doing notary online, e-notary. So those are a couple mm. of the things that I'm going to be following next week. Sam, what about you? Uh, Monday is a big day for guns at the state capitol. Uh, a couple of bills will be on the Senate floor, including uh, permitless or constitutional carry. We'll get a, a vote in the Senate. All right, Sam Greenglass, Raul Bali, our WAB politics reporters. They do such a wonderful job recapping the recent week of action at the state capitol and previewing next week thank you both for taking the time as always i appreciate it hug your pets thanks rose all right fellas see ya
And Close Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There's some advocates here in the state that want to stop Georgia colleges from asking applicants about prior felony convictions. And maybe that's a surprise to some of you. Well, the movement's called Beyond the Box. It's an organization. And joining me now to talk more about it is Beyond the Box Patrick Rodriguez. He's a campaign manager. And Abigail Cook, who's the director. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Uh, let me start with you, Abigail. Do you think most folks don't know that on some college, on, is it on all Georgia college applications or is it standard on a lot of applications that they ask this? It's been so long since I filled out a college application. I got to tell you, I don't remember that. But is that standard? Is that what we see? Yes. So we conducted our own research and found that all 26 USG schools do ask the criminal history question on their college application. And Patrick, is it just one question? It just says, have you ever been convicted of a felony or you have prior convictions or specifically felonies? Yeah, so thank you so much for that. So it's actually, there's three parts to it, um, but the two main parts are one is, have you been convicted of a crime that is farther than a simple, uh, than a minor traffic crime? Mm -hmm. And then the second asks if you have ever been convicted of a first offender or any other diversionary type of program um, and then it asks you to disclose uh, what program you may have gone into. Hmm. And Abigail or Patrick, is there is there evidence, a data that suggests that for those who have checked that box and especially for the felonies questions, that they have not been admitted or they won't be admitted? Is that a policy which within the Georgia system, Georgia region? So. Yes. So we've been reaching out and we've had people reach out on our behalf uh, to the USG to release this these uh, statistics and they have not um, been able to give us a, a clear answer on whether or not on how much of a, a bearing the criminal history question does have on an applicant's chance of being admitted. However, New York did a study that found that 60% of people with a criminal conviction that are applying to college who run into the question will just abandon the process completely because they don't think they have a shot. So they were abandoned, but we don't know if they were denied and if that was the reason it's it's going to be hard to determine whether or not that was a reason. Let me ask you this. Then either of you know, do other public state systems throughout the nation have that question on the applications as well? Yes. Um, so most states uh, and most colleges that are public do have that question. However, Louisiana did pass legislation to remove the question from um, public universities. And that's where you all come in. You want that question removed from the applications, Patrick? Yeah, so I think that when you talk about denial, there's like two ways of looking at it, right? There's an outright no, and then there's the secondary phase of actually having to go through the question. Um, that is a denial within itself. Um, and so whenever the question is asked, and it's asked about a certain particular, a certain group of people such as ourselves, um, which are formerly incarcerated individuals with convictions on our records, we are currently allowed to be discriminated against. Um, so that is a denial. So it's not so much the question that is being asked. It's how is it that we're being discriminated mm -hmm. and we're not included in the educational process here in the state of Georgia. Have you all, I understand you all have drafted a bill that you're hoping lawmakers, you get at least one lawmaker or two to sponsor this. Is that where you are right now? Yeah. So uh, yesterday we actually had a press conference on the south steps of the Georgia State Capitol. Um, Representative Angelica Kausch and Representative Wes Cantrell uh, spoke in support. We currently do not think that we are going to be dropping a bill this session, but crossover day hasn't ha happened yet. Uh, so we don't want to reveal that information right now in this moment. You don't want to give it all away. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Patrick or Abigail. Have you all looked at other successful legislation that was passed in other states to remove this question? Yes, we have. Uh, and we've been in conversation with other organizations and people who were pushing that legislation um, just to see what would be the most successful and the best option for the, you know, safety and a brighter future for our state. Well, what'd you all come up with? What'd you, what, what kind of feedback did you get? So I think that when you kind of look nationally, uh, Louisiana, California, Washington, um, there was some traction in Kentucky, Maryland, and also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I forget the last state. Um, but with traction, it's like, what is it when we look at those different things and we look at the legislation that's been paid, passed in the other states, I believe that education is the first angle 
it's the first step in order to start getting individuals that have been impacted by the criminal legal system on their feet in order to access jobs which pay good enough in order for them to actually be able to survive and not have to go back to criminal activity. Does your measure that you all have drafted, if, if, if it doesn't, are you considering, does it include some provisions that, okay, if we, if we can't remove this question, that there be some type of process for either explanation or an independent review from a committee, some may say, well, you shouldn't have to do that, but are you willing to make a compromise if it means moving, getting this measure moved throughout the state legislature? Um, so I think that we're exploring all facets of communication in terms of the governing bodies that do have the control over the policy that is currently in place. And so what does that mean? So currently there is a secondary process, right? So when you ask, when you answer that preliminary question that asks about criminal conviction history, that's point one. After that, it's up to the institution in order to follow up or to ask or request for more. Um, and I think that both Abby and I found that her a story for or her process through Georgia State University was different from my process at Kennesaw State University. And I'm not going to say either one was any less or more, mm-hmm. um, but was is it was the next step that asked for more. Abby, can you share your process if you don't mind? Yeah. So I applied while I was still incarcerated and they uh, first asked for my criminal the my criminal history and a background check, which does cost money to receive. And you do have to go to the court Mm -hmm. to get it filed. So my mother had to collect all those documents and send them. Then I had to write a personal statement, which I wrote. Um, I articulated it over the landline in the jail to my mom who typed it out. I just want to mention that personal statements, especially when on a college application, you're supposed to talk about how great you are and present yourself in the best possible light, but you also have to talk about your worst mistake. And that's a minefield for anyone. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how educated you are. It's how how is anyone expected to do this? And finally, they asked for a phone interview. I was unable to do a phone interview. Um, phone calls in jail cost about $5 and mm-hmm. um, universe, and it, it was just very tricky. So my mom was going to do it on my behalf and they had to have me sign a FERPA form. So we had to have a lawyer pay him, you know, $200 for his time, mm-hmm. come down to the jail, have me sign the thing. In the process, the officers left me in the attorney booth for four hours. And it's basically like a three by four, really dark and cold and wet cell. And they just forgot I was there. So the, the process and the follow-up ended up being really, really physically and emotionally traumatizing for me. Mm. Um, And it's not this difficult for everyone, but it maintains to be an incredibly difficult situation for most people applying to college with criminal records. Oh, Abby, I can only imagine. Patrick, what about you, your process? Yeah, so when I applied to Kennesaw State University, um, I was actually uh, at a student at Kennesaw State University prior to engaging in criminal um, activities, which led to a conviction, which was led to five years in the Georgia Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. So I ended the process as a student without a conviction and as a student with a conviction. And whenever I received the letter which asked for more, um, I knew that I wasn't being judged the same as I was back then. I knew I wasn't subjected to the same academic standards as every other student that was attempting to go to Kennesaw State University. So they asked for my GCIC, which is my Georgia criminal history, my final disposition paperwork. And I've had, um, I've had, uh, I have had convictions in multiple counties to be very transparent. Mm -hmm. And what we is that people that get into the criminal legal system, they continuously, it's like a revolving door, right? And then also they ask for my preliminary court records, letters of recommendations. But the most disturbing thing to me um, was the line that said uh, that we will make the decision that we believe, it's that word believe, is in the best interest of yourself and the university. Um, so it was a subjective measurable that Kennesaw State did. And so not only did I stand on trial at the floor of Fulton County Superior Court, I stood on trial when I was looking to go to Kennesaw State University. Hmm. You all have obviously done a lot of work here and in crafting this measure and hoping that lawmakers, you do have some lawmakers who are supporting this. And Patrick, you mentioned, if not this legislative legislative session, then perhaps another time. But in the meantime, are you getting more support? And do you do you have support from some of the universities and colleges that say maybe they are in agreement with you or they're going to stay away from it because it has to really come from the, the university system up top? Yeah, so we do have support. We spoke with the Georgia State University Senate Committee on Diversity and Inclusion, and they released a three-page letter uh, full of research and and, um, opinions from their staff 
that asserted that the box isn't really a measure of campus safety. It's more just a discriminatory tool to keep people um, out of education, which was really great. I think our, our biggest support so far has come from students and educators. Mm-hmm. A lot of students, we go and talk to them and we ask them this question every time, would you feel scared to share a classroom with me or Patrick? Mm-hmm. Of course not. You guys are nice and you're cool and you seem so normal. And then one student wrote an essay and she was like, it seems so obvious to say yes, but if I hadn't have met them, I would have never felt comfortable. So it's basically the the stigma of someone who is identified by society as a criminal is so much greater than and so much more impactful than um, on our, our, you know, our lives and our legislation mm-hmm. than when we actually go and speak to people. And, you know, it breaks that barrier completely. So we've had students, we had like, dozens of students show up at the Capitol for us yesterday. They follow us on Instagram. They want to get involved and they want to see this happen. They want to see um, people who have been impacted by the system sharing a classroom with them, bettering their lives and getting an education. And here in Georgia, there were the efforts to ban the box on the question for asking if someone had been convicted of a felony for certain jobs, I believe state jobs, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, You all see that then as, as, hopeful and being optimistic that you can get this also removed from Georgia's colleges and universities, public colleges and universities, Patrick? Yeah, so um, we call our campaign Beyond the Box. Um, and the reason is, is because ban, there's a sometimes a little bit of negative connotations that come with that. And we're looking to get, to get beyond the criminal conviction that stands before me. Um, and so what happens is, is when we think about these things, we're just looking to figure out what is the best way for us to go after this. This is an education policy initiative, um, and we are focused on figuring out the best way to include us in education. And just to kind of reemphasize on what Abby said earlier, um, we have uh, attention and conversation, Georgia State, Kennesaw State, uh, Morehouse, Emory, mm-hmm. and also State were all present yesterday, and it was a really big win for us whenever we were on the south steps of the Georgia State Capitol. All right. Patrick Rodriguez, campaign manager, Abigail Cook, director for Beyond the Box and wanting to get Georgia colleges and universities to remove the question about prior felony convictions. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Keep us posted. Thank you for having us. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. If you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash closer look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.